We're going to open up this morning with Ephesians. I ask you to turn to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Now, when we last left off in Ephesians, getting a little feedback up here, we last left off in Ephesians, we examined Paul's second prayer. And it was a prayer to be prayed. So he would pray for his people to have the fullness of God. It was a prayer for spiritual empowerment, and with the empowerment comes the enablement to live out this great salvation. The salvation that came by the calling and election of God. Now, Paul's second prayer would end the doctrinal portion of the letter, and now as we start on chapter 4 and beyond, God willing, we cross over a bridge. A bridge has been crossed from the positional to the practical. So in chapters 1 to 3, you can think of it like this. It's knowing who you are in Christ. And from chapters 4 to 6, it's about being who you are in Christ. So now today we're going to look at these next three verses. They will deal with a topic that we have seen already. It's a very important topic. It means a lot to God and it means a lot to the church. And it is the topic of unity. Christian unity, to be specific. Now, Paul has already established in chapter 2 how this unity came to be. And we looked at this. It was through the cross of Jesus Christ. And Christ broke down the barriers, dividing people groups as Jew and Gentile, and brought them together into one new man. And now they are one in the Spirit. Thus establishing peace for his church. Now the positional unity that we saw in chapter 2 verses 11 to 22 is to now become a practical reality. As unity is primary for the church, foundational to the health of the church, to the growth of the church, for the overall purposes of the church and the maturity of God's church. God's unified temple here on earth. The body, the church of Jesus Christ. Christian unity is important to God and it's been accomplished by Jesus Christ and Christ has gone to great lengths to establish this unity. And consequently, the body of Christ now has a responsibility to preserve or maintain this unity. So let's read our opening text. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We start out with the worthy walk. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul urging, beseeching us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. Now walk is a figure of speech and it connotes following a, a course of life and conduct. And there's multiple walks in Ephesians and we've already saw this in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. How not to walk 
as a Christian. No longer should we walk according to the course of this world. According to the influence of Satan. We should not walk according to the influence of our fallen nature, the flesh as well. But he would prescribe a correct way to walk in chapter 2 as well. Verse 10, after being saved by grace, we are now the workmanship of Jesus Christ. And we ought to walk in good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us. Now, the worthy walk is common in Paul's letters. For example, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we ought to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In Colossians 2.6, if you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Now we will see this concept of walking several more times in Ephesians. We're going to see in chapter 4 again how not to walk, but we're going to see in chapter 5, that a Christian is to walk in love, walk in light. In chapter 5, verse 8, walk in wisdom, chapter 5, 15. Today's text, we see that this worthy walk will produce something in a Christian. It will produce five characteristics or attitudes that will manifest themselves in worthy behavior that will be essential in preserving Christian unity. In our text, the positional reality of this unity must now become a practical reality. So, looking at verse 1, as Paul would implore and urge to walk worthy, walk in a manner that exemplifies this calling. This calling, live it, be it. What kind of a calling? The highest calling. It's the highest calling to be called by God, to be a member of God's kingdom, to have eternal life. You, Christian, were called. You did not achieve this. Paul himself understood the significance of this calling for himself and for others as well. The gospel calling has now landed him as a prisoner under house arrest. And as tradition tells us, he would die for the faith. Paul understood the worth of this calling. But Paul also understood his own unworthiness as well. He writes in Ephesians 3.8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He was called by God's grace, yet unworthy. We were called by God's grace. Yet unworthy as well. But you were of high value to God. And that's why he called you. We see that in Ephesians. Now, it was God who would pay a high price for you. The highest price. So you have to ask yourself, what is this calling worth? Walk worthy according to this calling. Well, we are to live considering the worth. You can look at it this way. The expensive price that was paid for you was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to consider something. Have you ever paid for something a very high price and what you paid for did not have the value? It did not live out 
live up to the standard, if you will. Does that ever happen? It could be several things. We ought to walk in a manner that's befitting for a Christian. I want you to picture scales. Picture a scale right now. Here's the calling of God. Weighty, heavy, intense. And here is our walk. The walk should somehow level out the calling to some extent. The manifestation of our calling should resemble the price that Christ paid. Now, we are to live up to the standard, but do understand, living up to the standard does not make us any more saved. That is not the issue. It's a response to what God has done. Now, we understand something with Ephesians, as we're going to see. This conduct is a response to God's grace and this salvation, but this grace enables us not just to live for ourselves but to be very others-centered. And this is very important to the collective functioning aspect of the church of Jesus Christ. We're going to see what it is to be others-centered. So there are five characteristics or attitudes that transcendent behavior. Let's begin to look at them. Verse 2. With all humility, gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We conclude with verse 3. Now you have to understand something about the New Testament, about the Christian faith, and certainly Ephesians. The Christian faith is a relational faith. And certainly we have relation with God through Jesus Christ. But there is relational aspects all throughout the New Testament with one another. We see here that we are to show tolerance for one another. However, there are many examples as we see in American Christianity over the years that have become very man-centered, very narcissistic. And as the idolatry of self often will permeate the pulpits in America and the hearts of those in the pews, and that's very unfortunate. But we see the relational aspect to all members functioning together in the church here. And this text is no exception. But let's just examine these attitudes that will enable the church to preserve the unity that Christ has given us. Now the first one is humility. Walk, conduct yourself with humility. That's to be without arrogance. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility combats the great sin of pride and the great sin of pride gives birth to many other sins. So humility is very, very important. It was through pride that Satan rebelled against God. And pride will inevitably cause division in the body of Christ. So humility is not the most popular category for mankind. And it may not be the most popular category in many churches as well. Humility was not in fashion in the New Testament, and it's not very appealing today as well for many. But we are called to not live as the world thinks is appealing or stylish. We're called to live for Christ. We're called to obey the Word of God. Jonathan Edwards said this about humility. We must view humility as one of the most essential things and characteristics for true Christianity. Now we see an example. Embodying humility 
that will preserve unity in the collective body of Christ. And we see this in Philippians 3 and 4. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another. As more important than yourselves, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And it's through humility we see that this attribute here, this characteristic, embodied the ministry and life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Christ, in the very same chapter of Philippians 2, we see that He emptied Himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. Being found in the appearance of a man, He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, humility should come when you contemplate. We should be have so much humility within us when we think of the before and after in Ephesians. What do I mean? Think about what you were before God's grace lifted you from the miry clay. Think about what you are. We see this rags to riches story in Ephesians. We see that there is a before and after. Who were you before God's grace? No one is above one another after God's grace as well. And this is not just something for the Ephesian church. Paul would teach humility throughout his letters. We see it in Romans 12, 16. Be of the same mind towards, you guessed it, one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So we see something also related to humility is the second characteristic here, which is gentleness. And this word could be translated into meekness. Meekness has a direct relation to humility. And let's understand that meekness should never be conceived as weakness. That is not the case. Because meekness is power under control. Christian meekness is power under God's control. Understand that when we talk about meekness, the Lord will often send people in our way and to test our meekness, to test our humility, to test what we're going to see patience. But we are to yield to God's directive. So the meekness is in the power of God. It's strength, constraint by the Holy Spirit. But there's a dichotomy in the New Testament about decreasing and the power of Christ increasing. So, when we speak of humility and meekness, strength is often the end result of those. And the strength comes when we yield to the Holy Spirit. You will increase in God's calling. You will increase in God's power when you decrease in self. In self, in the flesh. We often hear a prayer on Wednesday night, and it's along the lines of this, less of me, more of you. Exactly. That is the prayer for all of us, to maintain this Christian unity, to preserve it, and overall Christian life. The spiritual power in us ought to increase, and by implication, the restraint of the Holy Spirit comes upon us as well, works together. 
See, a gentle person is one whose emotions are under control. It doesn't mean you never get mad. It doesn't mean that you cannot be wronged by someone. That's not what it means. But you're patient and you endure offenses without retaliation. And it's essential, this quality. So, power under control. And again, there could be a righteous anger in you when you see God's truth maligned, God's name maligned, and you see a brother and sister maligned. You can have a righteous indignation, but by the power of God and the wisdom of God, you know how to live out that righteous indignation. You know how to respond according to God's spirit and God's word. So we see examples of meekness, both the new and the old. Moses, not a weak man. A powerful man. Powerful in the power of God. Called of God for amazing ministry to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage. He was powerful. In and of himself, he was not. He was flawed. But in the power of God, the Lord produced something in him. And this power comes again by submission. So certainly, again, the life of Jesus... His ministry embodied meekness as well. And think of meekness as power under constraint, under God's constraint. Okay, the third characteristic we see is patience. Patience. And this could be translated as long-suffering. You're someone who has patience with one another. You're able to endure. And you're long-tempered. Now, someone who has patience will entrust things to God. And if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, a good understanding of God's sovereignty should produce in you a mindset of patience. Now, based on what we see, humility, patience, and we're going to see love, to walk this walk, does this sound familiar? Is this beginning to sound like Galatians 5 a little bit? Starting to sound that we are called how to walk? To walk in the Spirit. Now, Galatians 5, we see that. So, in the process of walking and walking worthy, but the calling which, which we have been called, the Spirit will enable us to do this. And the Spirit will enable us to fulfill all of these characteristics. It produces in us these attitudes and it and allows us to live them out. A unity that comes from God must be preserved by God's power as well. Now, regarding difficult people, and just because we're all new creatures in Christ doesn't mean that we may not have some differences. But God will often... I don't see too many difficult people, though, in this congregation. I must get, throw that in there. I must tell you, though, But the Lord can send difficult people in your life. The Lord can send difficult people in your life so that you may develop in patience, grow in this fruit, in this characteristic or attitude of patience. It adds to our maturity. And it gives us wisdom. And it gives us stability. Understanding what long-suffering is. Understanding what compassion is. The Lord produces this. You inadvertently may wrong someone else as well. So these are healthy, healthy characteristics. And we see number four, showing tolerance 
for one another in love. Why would we have to show tolerance? Because we're still fallen. We're still fallen creatures. We're yet imperfect. And we must deal with this fallen frame. I like how the new, the new Living Translation translates this. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Now, preserving unity that implies that there may be opportunities for disunity. There may be many reasons as to why disunity can occur. So instruction is given here to know ahead of time. Lest we not forget, brethren, that we are all sinners in recovery. We are all recovering sinners. And consequently, we may have to show tolerance to one another in love. Now let's look at this. Showing tolerance to one another in love. That's agape love. That's a love not predicated on feelings. That's a love that comes by choice. That's an intentional love. You choose unity. You choose to love. Now the person may be wrong, but yet you deal with this in a manner worthy of your calling. And you love. What kind of love is this? It's a self-sacrificial love. Exemplary, once again, in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's a love that is others-centered. Jesus wrote in John, it's recorded in John 13, the words of Jesus, verse 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love, again, one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How so? If you have love for one another. Now, love encompasses the qualities we see in verse 2. Do you know why? Because love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irrational or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. And that's how the ESV renders it in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-6. So showing tolerance for one another in love. Because love does cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8. And it's an essential quality in the collective unity, as we want to preserve what Christ has done in the body of Christ. Unity is predicated upon truth. And we'll talk more about that in part two when we get to verses four and six. But it does not mean that you will not agree, not disagree with others. You will agree on some things and you may have minor disagreements. But how you handle that with these qualities that we see makes the difference and will contribute to the collective unity of the body. Now, the goal of the worthy walk in our text here is, as we said before, it is the unity, the Christian unity. Not to create, but to preserve. And how will we do that? It seems as if by walking in the Spirit, by decreasing, the Spirit will increase. Less of me... More of you is a very good template here. 
Now, this call to preserve unity is a call for all church members. All church members. And the characteristics we see as well are a template. But understand the five characteristics we see. They will manifest themselves differently in different people. It's important to understand there is much diversity in the body. And in that situation where Paul was writing, there was much diversity as well. But there are variables. There are personalities. There are different temperaments. There are different experiences that you've had. There are different circumstances that come up in the life of the church. There are different levels of maturity here in the church. And these spiritual characteristics will manifest themselves differently, but make no mistake, the calling is for all to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. But know this, you will only have unity, Christian unity, with those who have the peace of God. Those who have been justified by faith who now have peace with God. This is what this unity is predicated upon as well. Those who are part of the true body of Christ. So make every effort to preserve it. And brothers and sisters, it may take effort sometimes to preserve unity. You see, because we could easily perpetuate attitudes that are antithetical to what we saw in verse 2. And we must deal with our fallen condition as it wants to rise up often and we could see in us attitudes that are the opposite of verse 2. Because in a fallen world, and the church still operates in a fallen world, because in the church there are fallen, fallen people, we must truly understand that situations may arise and can compromise this unity. We've seen this in the New Testament. We see it in 1 Corinthians. The very first chapter, Paul comes out of the gate and he writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, verse 10 to 13, by the, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you. So what was happening there were factions. And there was quarreling going on. And some people were saying, I am of Paul. Some people were saying, I am of uh, Apollos. I am of Cephas. And Paul would answer them and tell them, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, or was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, in the Corinthian church, there were many divisions. There were litigations, legal matters, divisions on spiritual gifts, so on and so forth. But this word for division can mean split or tear. So, there comes to a biblical unity because we want to mend every situation that may arise before a small tear becomes a bigger tear. But there are times when tolerance and the patience has been, the line has to be drawn. What do I mean? There are different situations where we are to draw the line when it comes to those who create division, who want to stir up division in the body. For example, in Titus 3, 10, and 11, for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, the unity takes effort, 
And the agape love is a choice, and unity is also a choice. We must make a choice, if wrong, to keep what we often say short accounts, to not hold grudges. The importance of not holding grudges and letting things go. We see uh, a situation in Matthew 18 when there are three steps when if you feel you've been wronged, and my personal opinion is it should never get past the first step. If we're mature, if we're considering one another, you go to the person directly. That's a choice you make. The second step, if they do not accept or there is not a compliance there, the second step is you bring other people with you, you bring witnesses, and the third step is you bring it to the church. Most notably, more often than not, the elders. But it's important to not let those little tears become big tears. And Paul will expound a very important principle in Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. And it's a true sign of spiritual maturity. Consider what he writes. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So understand, my flesh, my desires are not priority. Reconciliation and the unity of the body are priority. Reconciliation is foremost if that situation would ever arise. You see, there's a good principle, Paul writes, as if possible, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 18, when it's feasible, when it's possible. But I understand sometimes it is not. But we have to make considerations for the other person. I think that's what the text is teaching and something to take from this. We see in James that we got to listen to one another. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Proverbs 1.5, a general principle, which is good. A, a wise man will hear an increase in learning. Now, well, modern psychology will tell you vent. Get it off your chest. Vent. You're a victim. Vent. Do we need to always get the last word in? I don't think so. And if you are to vent, are you to vent and express yourself to everyone in the church? No. No, there are a time to vent. There are circumstances to vent. And there are the right people to vent to. Most notably, if, if the elders need to know about something, you go to them. You know that. You're a mature body. And much of what we see here is preventive maintenance. Sometimes there's an issue in the church, and Paul will address the issue. This is the word of God, and it's applicable for every gen generation, century, whether we have an issue or not. Praise God, to the best of my knowledge, we don't. And Proverbs 29.11 sums up the principle well. A fool, speaking of venting, vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. So if you want to vent, I think the first step is go to God if you've been wronged. Now you may have a right to be upset and you may be angry, but channel the anger correctly because we are always considering the collective unity of the body as foremost. Okay. 
Now, there are some traps that we could fall into, as we looked at here. There is the trap, if you're wrong, keeping the short account, the trap of venting, listen to the other person. But I want to talk to you a little bit about one of the opening scriptures we looked at, growing in the Word of God, growing in the knowledge of God. Are we not to grow in the knowledge of God? Of course we are. You have to grow in the knowledge of God. So what's the problem? What's the danger? There is a danger of what is known as head knowledge, which can produce arrogance and puff you up, as opposed to heart knowledge. Now, being anchored in the Word of God is essential. We are to be growing in the Word, walking in the Word. We are to be transmitting the Word of God in our evangelism with one another in our families. Absolutely. So we ought to increase in, in the knowledge of the Word of God. But this knowledge can produce arrogance. Now, let me be candid with you. As the Holy Spirit spoke to me, I'm going to just tell you what I got from this message. We are a Reformed church. Amen? Now, when we come to the Reformed faith, we can easily and inadvertently fall into a condition called cage stage. How many people have ever heard of this condition? Cage stage. Only one? Two? Seventeen? Nine? All right. You've heard it, but you're not admitting it. All right, what is it, first of all? Well, we'll go to the chief Calvinist, R.C. Sproul, to get the definition. And Sproul writes this. What is cage stage? Those new to reform theology can get so aggressive and impatient that they should be locked in a cage for a little while. <laughs> so they can cool down and mature a little in the faith. At times, someone becomes so convinced of the biblical doctrines of grace, he finds himself in conflict with friends and family because of his discovery of Reformed theology. And growing in the knowledge of God just can produce arrogance, whether it's Reformed or not. But to continue on this cage stage mentality, Tim Challies, a very popular blogger, had an article in March 25 2019, seven signs you're a cage stage Calvinist. I'm going to give you two as they really pertain to our text this morning. The first one I'll give you is kindness is not a concern. And Challies writes, the most com common symptom of a cage stager is, that, is the complete disregard for kindness as though it were not a fruit of the Spirit. Humility, gentleness, love... And patience are not luxuries. They aren't something we pursue if we have time. They are marks of discipleship with the risen Lord. Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. I'll end the quote there, but there's more. Now, another thing that Charlie's would write when it comes to this cage stage mentality, that we're to just be on God of. Burning bridges and building walls. Challies writes, a rubble of relationships because of how we handle Reformed theology is a dead giveaway of cage stage tendencies. Christians don't burn bridges with one another. We don't build walls of hostility and division with one another because Jesus tore them all down, end quote. And I think what he's referring to is chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 in Ephesians. So be aware of these attitudes that may rise up in the people of God. 
that will inevitably disturb unity in any church, in any generation, at any time. As members of the body of Christ, we are to prioritize unity. And we're going to see a lot more unity in the next three verses. And we're going to see how unity is foundational to stability and maturity in the church. As we go through chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, God willing. The collective body of Christ must be a priority to each and every one of us. So... In closing, Jesus Christ and Christ alone is responsible for the Christian unity. But today's text teaches us that we are responsible for preserving this unity. Make every effort, be diligent to preserve this unity. It is our responsibility. Be mindful of attitudes that are incompatible with the best well-being of the body, and really are not good for ourselves as well, individually. Now we are to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Those who have peace with God, this is what this unity is all about, because this is a Christian unity. We'll see more of the source of unity next time. And there is a theology that comes with this unity as well. Let's maintain this unity in, bond, in the bond of peace, especially what looks like we will be dealing with in the days of head, ahead. Brethren, we are in a fight. We must fight. We are called to fight. Meek people are not weak people. For the righteous are as, to be as bold as lions. But make no mistake, we are not to fight with each other. Let's be on the same page in all matters. Going forward, at all times, may we walk in the Spirit, may we be of the same mind as much as possible, for we are family. We are the body of Christ. We want to be unified in the days of head because we see specifically, as Pastor George spoke about this morning, these satanic strategies that are trying to make their way into the church and are trying to prohibit decency, trying to prohibit Judeo-Christian ethics and trying to prohibit the gospel. It won't prohibit the gospel. But we have a responsibility. We are not to be about this satanic, carnal way of thinking and not implement these strategies inside the church. No. We have the word of God for that. There are situations that we are to draw the line and say there is no peace in this situation. And we'll see what that is coming up in 4 to 6. We're called to be militant when it comes to the source of this unity. We're called to be militant with the theology and truth behind this unity. We are to earnestly contend for the faith. But make no mistake again, this is not a unity at all costs, but a Christian unity. And we'll examine this God willing, next time. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks, Lord. We give thanks for your church, your body, your unified temple. May we grow, Lord, in this unity. May we grow in the Spirit. May we experience the fullness of God. May we show tolerance to one another in love. May it come natural, Lord. 
And may, may we be mindful, Lord. May we be mindful of your truth. May we be mindful of the collective well-being of this institution that is so precious to you, Lord, the Church of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to walk worthy of this calling and preserve this unity. In Jesus' name, amen.